Welcome back to the Men You're Not Alone podcast. This is episode 95, and this one is going to be a genuine hodgepodge of some thoughts that have been kind of pouring through my head here lately. From the time I was about 11 until I was about 30 or so, I spent a lot of time reading. I've read enough books to make me kind of exhausted from reading over the course of my life. And I spent a lot of time studying ancient cultures. Most of the material that I read, people would consider to be exceedingly dry and dull. It was it was nearly all scholarly papers, scholarly books, things that, you know, I had to read twice. It didn't all just flow right off the page into my head. But it was stuff that I studied, and, and I was kind of bound and determined while I had enough time in my life to uh, devote to trying to learn about um, ancient gods, ancient cultures, in an effort to put my hands around some of the context of the Bible a little bit better and stand inside someone's shoes, possibly, as they're writing, so that I would have some context. Just as I try to do now with people, I, I understand the value of context. It is absolutely critical to understanding what somebody is saying so that there's a a phrase that says, I know what you said, but what did you mean? And a lot of times what gets said is mistranslated from lack of context or misunderstanding of context. And what gets said or conveyed um, is misread as something entirely different than what was intended to be delivered as a message. And I find that to be true across all of us as people. So I've, I've tried to guard a Against, I guess something in me knew that even as a kid and that it would be a long road to develop some context and some understanding. And I figured worst case, if it didn't help, um, at least it would make, I would have covered a lot of subjects and material. And I used to even travel around the country to places to read books that weren't allowed to leave libraries because they were exceedingly rare copies in archives. And you actually had to like, I had to sit, I went to a, I even outside of Boston somewhere once when I was out driving out east, there was a book at a library that I had wanted to read and, and I couldn't, I don't even remember what it was, but I had put in a, a request. This is back before email and stuff like that. So I had written a letter and sent it to the library. I remember reading that book. I didn't read it all because I didn't have time. But I had to sit like next to a librarian. It was like being in the principal's office um, because the book was exceedingly rare and it's valuable. And I was just grateful to be allowed to open it and look at it and kind of see what was written in it. And I sort of had to scan through it because I couldn't read it all. But I, I, I wish I could remember that's been, that's been many years back. But I had to sit next to a librarian almost. And, and that way they could make sure I wasn't taking pages out or damaging the book or something like that, which I had no problem with. I was just delighted to have access to to a book I could not get. And I'm sure that that has become less of an issue now that we have this digital stuff where you can make PDFs and scans and stuff of old books and then and then just do a cheap binding on them and, and sell them for 10 bucks, which is great. I'm glad that that's happened. Since I've had kids, I've not been able to study as, as much because honestly, it's if you've never tried to chase down the ancient world and let alone all the names of the various gods and trace them back, trace their lineage through different cultures and feed that into the Bible so that there is some context of an understanding of, of just how small the ancient world really was um, with different cultures expressing, uh, for the most part, the same kind of stories about the same kind of people. The same people, the same gods. It's it's exceedingly time-consuming, and I have not had time. I've just chosen to focus on other things in my life. But anyway, something a friend of mine sent me a link. There's a there's a gentleman named Trey Smith who does. He's been making videos on YouTube for quite a while, many years now. And when Trey started, basically what what Trey was doing was he was. In my opinion, he has a really good uh, knack for making videos, and I, lo- I, I like the fact that he kind of has—he just marches to his own drum, has his own uh, way of presenting stuff, and I think it's—it's it's cool. And he—he just—he—he he took research that has been going on for I don't even know how long, ages, 
and it's stuff that I, I took an interest in when I was very young. And, and like I said, I held on to that at least until I was 30. And I, I mean, I kept going with it and on and on through uh, seminary. So I guess it was longer than that. That was 2006, I think. 2007, maybe when I graduated from seminary. Um, it took me a while because I did it in two different parts of the country in two different seminaries over a six-year period, I believe. It was something like that. I don't know. I would say by the shortly after I finished up <clears throat> seminary and and then we started having kids and things like that. And that's where my available time started uh, diminishing by choice because I wanted to focus on my kids and my marriage at the time. But anyway, somebody had sent me a link. I haven't thought of Trey Smith in quite a while. And somebody sent me a link just to say, hey, have you heard of this guy? Have you watched this video? And I hadn't. And so I watched it. I didn't really watch it. I listened to it while I was doing some stuff last night. I was pretty tired. I like listening to stuff in the background uh, more than I do watching it. There was a, a part where he started talking about Utu, which, you know, it kind of have to, I have to go back through these catalogs in my head of decades of digging through stuff in, a, in an effort to understand things and not just take somebody else's word for things, but to go to as close to a primary source document as I could get in the historical record to get a better understanding of history, or at least what somebody was trying to convey about their perception of history, and to somehow try to connect the dots myself without relying on a history teacher to give me... I mean, eventually information passes through so many lenses sometimes that... I, I don't know. It just... The more glasses, the more lenses you stack up, the more distortion you can get, and the lens becomes a little bit uh, blurry. When he mentioned U2, I kind of stopped. I think I was folding some laundry, and, and what came over to where the monitor was and was looking, and it kind of spurred something in my head last night while I was... I just came and looked at the monitor for a few minutes, and he was talking about Utu, and, and I, I don't remember ever drawing a connection. I may be misrepresenting what Trey said, but I believe he was drawing a parallel from Utu to Ham, which would be one of Noah's sons. I don't recall ever drawing that kind of connection, but I do, um, in the few minutes he presented it, I do understand the argument he's making for it. And it may not even be his. It may just be a summary of research that he's been watching or he's been studying or reading or whatever. Um, I mean, he and I are both nerds, so I'm sure he reads a lot of dry material as well and has for a long time. But as I thought about that through the evening and then this morning, I woke up and was just laying in bed for about an hour because I just felt like being a bum. Plus, it was really early and I was waiting for the sun to come up. And I started thinking about the possibility because there's, to me, Genesis is one of the most fascinating books in the in the world. And it's definitely one of the most interesting ones in the Bible uh, because it records a world that honestly, most of us will not, our worldview will not permit it to be real. And that I'm speaking of people inside the church, inside the churches. Well, it's, it's why we don't preach much out of or teach much out of Genesis because it's a world that it, it kind of makes us look like uh, uh, tunnel vision, maybe narrow-minded on a academic level, kind of narrow-minded, like, nope, this is outside of what we're allowed, we're allowing to be real. So it's, this is the stuff of which we don't speak. And that's certainly not the first time in history that this sort of mindset has happened within the churches. And I've just never walked down that road. I don't, I don't have a problem discussing much of anything. And most of the time I know that, that I don't have the answer yet. I'm just sort of working my way towards something. And so that's the case with this one, and I'm not by any sense of the imagination uh, implying that I have an answer here. This is just a spur discussion, and it's something that crossed my mind, and perhaps uh, somebody hears it somewhere in the world and decides to chase it down, and maybe it's completely vacuous and, and empty and, and unfounded and baseless. I don't know. But I started thinking about how, you know, there's the, it's a long old thing. You know, the, the Nephilim were there in Genesis uh, 6. And then also when you get back to Numbers, you know, this is after the flood. And then the, the, the Nephilim are, are upon the earth again. And, and that's, there's a lot of ideas of how that happened, things like that. And they're very solid. Um, I think, you know, Michael Heiser typically has some absolutely well-grounded arguments for things. And, and I enjoy reading his stuff. 
and like everything. Of course, we don't agree maybe on everything, but I, I don't need to be reading a book from a twin. Um, that would be as boring as it could be. So I like reading things that might conflict with what my conclusion might be, because I'm going to bet that neither myself nor Michael nor Trey were working toward an answer. And at best, it's got a dull edge. Um, it's a knife with a dull edge. And, and every pass you make, it gets a little bit sharper, but you're never going to quite get it sharp enough to shave with. Um, and one day we will, but I have a feeling it's going to take Jesus explaining it to us for us to have an aha moment and just put it all together and say, now it makes sense. But I was, I was, uh, and again, I'm totally winging this. I just scribbled a few notes on some, on some printer paper here. So I, it's just something because, uh, the Nakash, the, the serpent, the serpentine like being that came to Adam and Eve in the garden. I just had this random thought this morning and I was drinking some coffee and doing something else. Um, I don't even remember. Oh no, I was just, I was cooking sausage and I was just kind of moving toward breakfast. And I had this random thought, like, you know, the Nakash comes and offers, uh, it's translated usually as a serpent, but Nakash is, it definitely encompasses more than just a serpent. This isn't like a, a garter snake that shows up in a garden and starts talking to Adam and Eve to seduce them into his way of thinking. I'm thinking, what if, you know, he is serpent, he has serpent qualities, serpentine, serpent-like. So I'm going to guess that... You know, part of something being a serpent is typically a fang. And maybe he didn't have fangs. I don't know. But is it possible? You know, we always, you know, I've worked with a lot of kids and they always want to know, you know, what was the apple? And I'm like, I don't know. You know, I don't know what eating from this tree and eating from this tree. I just, there's nothing in me that says it was as simple as eating an apple. I, I just, to me, that's. I think it's missing the point of something, and I think it comes down to it, there were two choices, and there were two perspectives, two paths, and I just was wondering, like, is it possible that the Nakash, this serpent-like, brilliant being, offered to put something into Eve's body, like an injection with a like a snake can, to make them a better version of a human? To make them more complete. Like, I don't know what kind of story he sold to Eve, who then passed it on to her her mate, Adam, and convinced him of it. But if, if he was going to, you know, he promised to make them like gods, like him, like the Nakash, who would have been one of the gods. So to make them like him, because I'm going to guess that he looked very different because Adam and Eve are not referred to in any way of having serpent-like features. But the Nakash, the name itself, makes that very clear that he does. So does he offer to make them into his image? The Nakash offer to make Adam and Eve into their image by injecting something into her blood that possibly, I don't know, alters DNA that I don't have a clue. But I think maybe it's because of the the last three years and the medical discussions I've heard around some of this stuff that's being injected into people and what it is capable of, not what it's designed to do. Now, whether it's actually achieving that, I don't know. But but the as I understand it, the science behind it, the intention uh, behind the mechanism is to, in fact, alter and splice and and like move around DNA to make people better, which would basically be like the transhumanism thing where you get human 2.0, which took me back to the garden where you have the Nakash saying you can be like God. See, and I'm, I'm immortal. I, I can almost kind of hear him trying to sell this story that you see, I am, I'm an immortal divine being and, and you're just a person. You're not good enough. You're not brilliant enough, you're not shiny enough, and you don't look anything like me, so you're the freaks. But if you want to be like me and have all of this wisdom and knowledge and stuff like that, and you want to be better and live forever, it I've never thought of the possibility of the Nakash injecting something into Eve. She maybe experiences some kind of uh, false sense of euphoria 
from it, which I can say I've seen in TikTok videos and stuff like that that people send me. Um, sort of this euphoria of a lot of people who got these uh, jabs for the last three years of the fear scam or fear campaign. And it, it's like that momentary thing where they believe it's something good. And then, you know, uh, there's thousands of regret videos afterwards with very bad side effects of things that even though they were warned not to eat of that tree by many, many doctors and medical professionals that, that the, the mechanism that was being injected into their body was, was not going to be uh, a positive for their biology. And, and I just go back, it seems like such a parallel to me. Then I thought, well, okay, so if, Let's say the I'm just playing this out. So say the Nakash injects something into Eve. She sells it to Adam. Adam also lets the Nakash inject something into him to make him human 2.0, a better human. It, let's say it's something that corrupts the bloodline because that moment is what gets them removed from the way God had created a place for mankind to be. It was no longer what they had become, what they had transgressed was no longer compatible with what God had created for them. So they were removed from that place, uh, banned from it. So I thought, well, let's just say Adam and Eve progressed forward with an altered DNA. So now they are not entirely the same as they were. And I'm not even saying this is the case. This is pretty whacked. But then I thought, well, you know, Noah was found clean by God. And... And he came from Seth, who was Adam's firstborn, Adam and Eve's firstborn son. So how would Noah, let's say he wasn't a genetically altered person? Well, what if Seth was born in the garden? I mean, I don't know, but that, is it possible, you know, because Adam, I'm trying to remember how, I don't want to say it was like 130 when Seth was born. I, I didn't, I don't remember, but give or take, I think it's somewhere around there. So if Seth was already born, that would mean that his genetics were intact and unaltered. So then Seth, uh, there's, well, you've got Seth and then you've got Enosh, Kenan, uh, Mahalalel, Jared, Enoch, Methuselah, Lamech, and then Noah. So if those generations stay clean and, and you've got Enoch in the middle who is clean enough to walk with God and then God just takes him up, you have a line of People that lead to Noah, from Adam, it's one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. Noah's the ninth generation from Adam. And so Noah was found clean by God, which um, I remember in my teenage years, I'd have to go back and, and find out, but I, I remember in my teenage years, uh, my understanding was Noah was, f- and then there's the coffee pot. That's crazy the timing. Uh, but anyway, but Noah was found clean in his generations by God. Now that may have been like a an insertion into the text for somebody preaching on something or something I read. But I mean, the word for Noah being found righteous by God is also a word that means clean. So I don't know if that could mean clean in his generations, clean in his DNA. I have no idea. But then, so Noah has three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth or Japheth, whatever, I don't know how you say his name. And let's just say Noah has, because those three sons are born before they get on the ark. So they all get on the ark together because the world's flooding. Then they get done with the flood. The the ark comes to rest somewhere in the region of Ararat. And let's say they get off the boat and their DNA, so the, the DNA is clean. It no longer has any corruption of something by, uh, along the lines of the Nephilim this angelic human hybrid race that that did something bad enough to warrant God destroying creation. But he spares Noah because he is found clean or clean in his generations. I don't know. I'm not saying that's the case, but at least clean by God. So they get out. Their DNA is the same. That's like from Genesis 5.32. The Bible shows that Shem, Ham, and Japheth were born in when, when Noah was 500 years old. I've never really noticed that, but I'm thinking... Maybe they're triplets. You know, I've, I've actually never even thought of that. But if they were born in the in the 500th year of Noah, that would pretty much have to... I mean, I guess it's possible that they could have been born one month and then maybe nine months later. One, I, there's, at least, there's at least twins in there somewhere. 
but they're I'm going to guess that they're triplets and I'm I'm thinking that those three being born as triplets might be a sign from God to Noah that his word is good and they are in fact going to repopulate the earth. Well, no, see, no. So they get out of the ark. Noah's 600 years old at this point. Which if you're if you're not if you don't spend any time around the Bible and stuff, you can go to you can go to all kinds of you can go to all the old ancient cultures. Uh, people living for a, like a really long time. That is not uh, something foreign to the entire narrative around the, re- the telling of history through the ancient world. Um, you can just roll your eyes at it if you want, but that really doesn't dismiss it. And you, you're dismissing a whole lot of uh, recorded stuff that was exceedingly hard to record in stone. Th- this is not a foreign concept that people live for a long time in the pre-flood world. Um, and it's not a strictly Christian thing at all. It is just, this is a record from the Bible of something that does mirror the historical record from before the flood. So, and, and there's ample evidence all over the world of it. You're welcome to chase that down yourself, but I would be very slow to roll your eyes at this stuff because we are, we tend to be dismissive and and say that stuff is just crazy talk. And that uh, really, that's just laziness on your part, if that's what you're doing, uh, because you don't want to do any of the lifting. And again, it, it, this is the same that you can point a finger at the churches. But if if you dismiss stuff like this because it threatens your worldview, then you are being that narrow-minded fool that you're pointing the finger at the church to accuse them of doing something. You've got a log in your own eye while you're pointing out a piece of sawdust in the church's eyes. So this is where we have to be careful as people. And and this is why I'm not afraid to throw this stuff out there with absolutely no conclusion drawn from it. This is simply just throwing it out there. So Ham does something that is described in the Bible as seeing his father's nakedness. So they've been out. The the waters have gone down. They've left the ark. Um, Noah has planted a vineyard. And I'm getting, you know, some time has passed here. I don't know how much time. It doesn't say. But he's planted a vineyard, and then he takes some of the grapes, and he makes wine with it. Well, it, he drinks some wine, and it gets drunk. And it says that he goes back to his tent and, you know, removes his garments and goes to sleep. But then Ham, I should have just read it. So it says that Ham, so this is from Genesis 9. So Noah, a man of the, uh, this is verse 20. Noah, a man of the soil, began to plant a vineyard. When he drank some of the wine, he got drunk and uncovered himself inside his tent. Ham, the father of Canaan, who is one of Noah's sons. Um, Ham, the father of Canaan. It's Ham's youngest son. So Noah's uh, appeared. Well, it's, it's a young grandson. Or it's a grandson. Uh, Ham, the father of Canaan, saw his father's, father's nakedness and told his two brothers, who would be, um, uh, not Seth, uh, Shem and Japheth, and told his two brothers who were outside, somewhere outside the tent. Shem and Japheth took the garment and placed it on their shoulders. They walked in backwards and covered up their father's nakedness. When Noah awoke from his drunken stupor, he learned what his youngest son had done to him. So he said, Cursed be Canaan, the lowest of the slaves. And then it, it just goes on about how Canaan will be cursed to be under or subservient to Japheth and Shem. In their bloodlines, or in you know, like in their whatever their families, uh, cultural status, that sort of thing, political status. This is a, sorry. There's a lot of context to this, and it's having gone through seminary. This whole curse of Canaan, the curse of Ham, all this stuff. You know, what was it that they did? You know, who got cursed? Was it? I've heard all kinds of stuff that goes on about it, but but to me, like. I'm wondering if this is Canaan because Noah comes out, so he's he is seen as righteous by God, clean. So Ham goes in and sees his father naked. I don't think that, and I like Michael Heiser has brought this up as Ham went and laid with his mother and and had sex with her out of kind of just a twisted something. Uh, Michael Heiser does make a good argument for that. I'm not a Hebrew scholar by any stretch of the imagination, but I want to pose something just different. And this is, I'm trying to look at this as a child looks at it. Noah's a righteous man seen clean bef- bef- by God. So if, if Ham had committed this, this heinous thing, whatever it is, Noah, if he is truly righteous, in my opinion, I th- 
I would think he would curse Ham. Why would you reach down and curse your grandson, like your one of your youngest grandsons? Like that doesn't it doesn't make sense to me, and it could just be because I'm ignorant of some type of historical context or something like that. So I'm not dogmatic on this. But he curses Canaan, and here Canaan is banished. But I have a thought on that too. I'm going to guess that by the time Noah wakes up, Canaan's already gone. And possibly Ham and his other three sons, uh, one of them is Cush, who goes on to give birth to Nimrod, but or he is the father of Nimrod. So I think this whole clan, I, I'm just wondering, is it possible what happened? Is Canaan did something? And I'll tell you what I think that might be. So Canaan... So when Adam and Eve sinned, they became aware, in the garden, when whatever happened with the Nikosh, they became aware of their own nakedness for the first time. God, when he came back and walked, because he walked with them every day in the garden, just as he did with Abram, God would just show up with angels and stuff like that, and, and they were the form of humans. Um, or they had human-like form, and they were recognizable as divine, though. God creates some coverings by basically making the first sacrifice. Trey Smith, uh, if if I read him right, again, I only listened to it once and I was doing other things while I was listening to it, but he seemed to indicate that he's of the opinion that perhaps that covering was made by killing a snake or I, something like that, that possibly those snakes kind of as a way, since it was the Nakash that instigated it, it would be something of like that, that sacrifice would be born by him. Like he would have to give it up and not that the Nakash himself was killed. And, and, and then these coverings made with that. I don't know, but let's just say that whatever these coverings were, I need to go back and listen to Trey. I should have done that before I recorded this, but, uh, but let's just say for Goofy's sake, let's say that those coverings were made from a similar being or a similar type of creature in the garden. And that's what the, that clothing was made for. It has long been been postulated that those garments were taken into the ark by Noah, uh, that those were passed down from Adam on down through the chain, and that they wound up with Noah and they were put on the ark and taken. I don't know that there's a single piece of evidence that would support or rebut that solidly. That I'm aware of. There maybe there is, but is it possible? So if if you're standing in Noah's shoes, you are 600, let's say 600 plus a little bit of years because you're you've got a, a vineyard planted. You know you probably need four or five years for the grapes to mature enough that you can actually have a harvest that's really good. And I would imagine he might be tired, or maybe you know what? Maybe he's he's getting up in his years. I think he lived to be 900 and something years. I don't remember. He lived a long time. He was kind of like the only, like one of the only ones really after the flood that lived comparable to the people before, like Adam and stuff like that, people like that. So is it possible that Noah may have had those, let's say he took those, doc, those garments onto the ark? His boys, I suspect, would know that those were there. Uh, because, I mean, you can, if there's only a handful of you and you're on an ark, I mean, you're going to, basically talk about a lot of stuff maybe but anyway let's say he just as a moment let's say he was having a time of uh gratitude like the full scale of what god had carried him through and protected his family from it does he have a moment of where he wants to kind of pay tribute to it maybe that's where the whole wine thing started you know he may have been sitting out in a vineyard if you don't grow stuff things like that like i've always loved to grow stuff it doesn't matter if it's trees, a garden, grapes, uh, berries, trees, it, uh, anything. I love growing stuff. And to me, there's a point when you're growing everything, when it, there's a certain level of maturity in the crop that you're growing where it's uh, refreshing to just sit and, and kind of look at it and marvel at it, at the way that God designed seeds, the way things grow, the fact that it produces food, that it's nourishing to people who eat it. Is it possible that Noah, he's well along in his years now, kind of exhales and realizes, you know what? We made it here, God, because you intervened 
and you, and you got us here. And maybe he put the, those garments on. I don't know. But he, so he goes into his tent and is it possible that Canaan may have come in? Let's say Canaan's a little bit of a rascal. You know, he's the youngest. Let's say Canaan comes in because Noah curses Canaan. What if Canaan has this kind of notion that these are priceless artifacts from the beginning? And he takes those. What would make Noah come out and curse Canaan? Um, I can tell you right now, if, if I was married and one of my sons slept with my wife, I would not go curse my grandchildren. To me, that just doesn't, there's no logical flow to that. There's nothing in, to me, that indicates that Noah was an illogical man. I think he moves along uh, very logically. I mean, heck, he built an ark. You've got to be able to make a linear, logical train of thought to do a project of that scale. You can't be random and you can't be like mentally unstable. Like you have to be able to have a long, you have to play the long game. And that takes logic and a, a linear view of moving from goal to goal. So I, I say, say Canaan did this or did something that got him cursed. And so he, let's say he just takes the garments. Let's say when the garments are mentioned, what if it's the garments that Adam had? Because if, if somebody just came in and, and took his clothes or something like that, or saw him naked, I, there's a million things that get read into it, but I think it's something bigger than this for Noah to curse when you've only got a handful of people and you are the patriarch who has protected them and brought them along and you are now at a point of peace, like there is so much peace that you are focused on a vineyard. Like you, you've pretty much done a lot of the hard work and now you can rest in a vineyard for a minute, drink some wine. I, I, I think this is very likely a moment of gratitude where, where Noah is kind of maybe overwhelmed by really the whole scale of his life. So Canaan gets the garments. Canaan is banished. It just Ham goes away. Ham, his sons, Canaan, they all go away. And then in listening to Trey, where he connected uh, Ham with Utu, we'll see Utu, Utu comes from the, the two big peaks uh, in the Gilgamesh epic, uh, Utu, uh, came from the the region of the two big peaks, which is the Ararat region. I think it's actually one of them is Mount Ararat, and the other one is like Little Mount Ararat, or maybe it's it's something along that line. But that is where Utu came from, but wasn't there. So, but but Gilgamesh deals a lot with Utu, and Utu sets himself up as the serpent god. And then is worshipped by people as the serpent god. Well, let's say Canaan takes these garments and they were made by they were made of some kind of serpent-like creature that would have been in the garden, or maybe the Nakash himself. I don't know. Canaan takes these things. Maybe Ham is complicit in it. Maybe Ham has manipulated Canaan to to do this. His youngest, maybe he's manipulated him to, to go in there and do it because maybe he's a little bit, has a little bit lower form of, maybe le, a lesser quality of judgment. Um, and Ham sets this up or maybe Canaan did it all on his own. Then Ham is stuck in this weird spot where this is my son. Fine, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to gather up my family and we're going to leave. But, but then if you fast forward just a little bit, because you've got Ararat, which if they're with Noah, you know, Ararat, it, that region is uh, north, like, Turkey and Syria, I'm trying to see it on the map in my head. I think it's uh, Turkey and Syria and uh, I think it's modern-day Armenia, maybe. I, I could be wrong on that. Anyway, that's the that's the region where Ararat is. And then if you come south of there, you've got, you know, you've got the Tigris and the Euphrates down in that region, but you've also got What's the Assyria? Nineveh. You've got uh, uh, where Nimrod built all kinds of stuff, uh, like the Tower of Babel, things like that. That's all in this outflowing south of the region of Ararat, which so that and and that is where Utu, it, that's where he like his kind of rule is. 
And so it, did he take those garments, set himself up? You know, we wonder how the Nephilim were present after the flood. So let me just pose this. I'll wrap this up here real quick if I can swing this. So could, if those garments were made of snake or made of the Nakash, let's just say the Nakash because I don't, I don't feel like ferreting out all the possibilities. Let's say those govern those garments were made of the Nakash. So, fast forward, uh, Noah puts them on, and maybe nobody knew he had them. I don't know, but they realize what they are. Canaan goes in and steals them, working with or without Ham. Regardless, Ham, Canaan, and those guys they all leave, and Cush is you know Cush is here. At this, uh, Ham's got four sons. At the time, he's got Cush as his first firstborn, who is Nimrod's father. Anyway, they leave. They go south. And they go toward where Nimrod will be building a cod and uh, a uh, not Assyria. The three cities of Nineveh that are the cap uh, Nineveh is the capital of the Assyrian Empire. And it's a it's a composite of three cities. And then so Utu, Ham sets himself up as the sun god. And and then he's got Cush, who's his oldest. Cush is the father of Nimrod. Now, Nimrod, you've got where, like, by the time you get to Nimrod, you've got this, this guy that wants to build a tower to the gods, to give access to the gods. And, and I don't see it as, they say, you know, it's always portrayed as like, I'm going to go to the heavens and build this. Well, unless you're a dingbat, you're not, you're not, how are you going to build a, no matter how you view the construction of the earth, you're not building this, this gargantuan tower, because I think he was building a way to try to summon or a doorway perhaps to bring the gods back in sort of like the way the Inky passed through the waters, the, the Apkalu from uh, the Mesopotamian stuff where they come up through the abyss, through the, they're, they're the, the underworld sages, not all of them, but, but the Apkalu who are from the underworld, they pass through the waters and they are sages that guide mankind. And so is, is this whole thing being set up to where, like, you, if you look at the fruit of the tree, and I, I do believe it is very possible that Utu is Ham. And then you've got this lineage being passed on. And then from Nimrod... Uh, things just go kind of crazy. Like again, you've got this thing. Could the art of not the artifacts, the garments have been kind of like a sigil, like a like a, a, a way to summon, like a scrying mirror. And is that why Noah was so angry? Was there something that would tie that mindset? Let's say that. Uh, the Nephilim, I, th I think at this point, I think you're, I think Noah's probably a very large guy. I think all the people at this time, they're, they're compared to us. They are definitely giants. Um, I don't think that in and of itself makes a, a Nephilim, a Nephilim, uh, that it, just that it's a giant. Because I think that a lot of the people writing about that time, at that time, talking, you know, th they're also very large. So what makes a Nephilim a Nephilim? And I'm wondering if this is just a spiritual something that can be brought in. Does it alter DNA? Does it like kind of like back from the garden? Like when or like when the angels come in. So is it possible back in the garden? Maybe the Nakash injects something that makes humans, makes it possible for humans to, uh, what would you say? interbreed with an angelic race because it's not long after that that angels leave their abode they leave the spiritual realm they come down as recorded in enoch and mount Hermon, and then they spread out and they are you know like in uh present perfect they are continuing to make to uh make offspring with human women so they are continually making this is it what happened in the garden that made that possible is this is it is it is this the way satan wants to undo god's creation is to uh create a different uh dna of what god has to this point made unbreakable so is that what happened in the garden it's what the angels did when they decided to leave that realm and come down on Mount Hermon and then start breeding with human women and making babies that were the Nephilim. 
and then fast forward a lot to our present day. And what are people doing? They're trying to alter DNA again. And that's what the last three years seems to have been focusing on is altering DNA to take something that God created and create it into something different in, I would argue, a much darker being's image. And this just kind of seems like a steady theme from the beginning to now. And you've got Jesus... No, that's too. I'm I'm going to wind up going all over the place. I already have anyway, but I'm I'm just wondering if any of this has anything. All right, I got a couple of notes, then I'm going to wrap it up. This is a much longer one than I had imagined it would be. So this is this all takes place on the heels of God confirming a covenant with Noah. You know, this whole stealing of the garments or uh, the cursing of Canaan. This is on the heels of God confirming with Noah and his three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. That um, that he'll never destroy the world again with with a flood, with a global flood or a worldwide flood. So at that moment, if you've been, uh, because obviously Satan is still around and he's still very much. I mean, the spiritual realm is still completely around. It didn't get destroyed. So even if the Nephilim are gone, so okay, I lost my train of thought. There may be a hard edit right there just before this um, because I lost my train of thought. So I'm going to conclude with this thought because this one has long puzzled me and I do find it puzzles other people and we don't seem to really ask this question. The whole point of this is, is because I've said it many times, often we as people, we ask the wrong questions and and then we get dogmatic about stuff and, and then once we figure it out, we'll, by God, we've got it figured out and so therefore we must be right. I have long held that I I can't be in that position because I'm just too easy to deceive. So here's a thought. So regarding the Nephilim, is it possible that the just like in so you can summon the the underworld. Uh a lot of people throughout history in the world and in today's world, they do that and that's where they're they 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 summon they summon the spirits of the underworld and and think that that they're going to come out ahead in the exchange only to find out that they really invited something that they have a heart they can't get rid of um, something that eventually terrifies them and reveals itself for the hellish beings that these things are that make these sweet promises to people just like the nakash made to adam and eve in the garden you know i'm totally your friend you know, I can make you smarter. I can give you more. I can do all this stuff. And then once he's in the door and in your house, um, once he's occupied, taking up residence in your life, it's a train wreck. And and it's terror for people, um, even if it seems like uh, like they get to have their cake and eat it too at the beginning. That's not how it finishes. I would argue if Utu, so the, the, the steels that are out there, there's one in particular, and I don't know the name of it. I do have a, a copy of it in in some of my books, um, and it's a, it's a very popular one. And it shows Utu with three little Utu is very big, very tall, very giant with um, three little guys like bringing him something, and it's Utu sitting inside the uh, the, the the White House thing, the his little temple. Um, he had two of them. There used to be a cartoon character by that Babar, El Babar or Ibabar. Something like that, the White House. So that's uh, Utu's temple, and it's a very famous uh, steel. It's a it's a limestone steel. A- anyway, if I can't show it on a podcast, so well here, uh, here you want a picture of it? Here it is. Um, anyway, so but that steel shows the spirit of us, the serpent indwelling in uh, guiding Utu. Let's just project this onto Ham, or maybe it's Canaan. I don't know. But say that they've put these garments on, or they've used these garments to, in fact, summon back the spirit of the serpent, which I think therein you have the Nephilim. This spirit, this serpent spirit, this Nakash, satanic spirit of the Nakash. And the Nakash is what is off. I mean, that would be like Satan uh, but Satan isn't there like Lucifer, all that. Is that the difference? It's not the size that makes the Nephilim the Nephilim because their peers are also large. But perhaps that line 
that is corrupt and genetically altered, and it's genetically altered by summoning in... God, I'm not even presenting this well. So obviously, by the time we get to David, Goliath is much larger than David, okay? So, and, and much larger than than David's mighty men. Goliath and his and his brothers, are they're still large. Og was very large, probably 12 or 13 feet tall. There is something that alters that DNA. So yes, it's something to do with an, an angelic hybrid, but what if it what if it isn't what if that DNA can be altered by by just summoning those things and then suddenly these people have these these you know people summon the underworld uh, spirits from the underworld to gain an advantage with the intellect with m- uh, making money they say they call it selling your soul. So yes, the underworld creatures are available to be summoned. And like I said, it that juice ain't worth the squeeze, but you know, apparently some people have to find that out and go live in hell, literally on earth, um, with that being one once you invite it in. And I don't it, it makes me a little nervous to even mention it too much because I don't want to dance with that world, that that spiritual realm side of things, um, that part of it. If you've got ham is it possible he has, in fact, summoned the very thing that makes the Nephilim the Nephilim? Does it start through Ham or through Canaan? Because then when you go back to, because where are they going to? They're going to Canaan. That's where the Israelites, when they leave Egypt, they're going to Canaan, named after Canaan, Ham's son. So what's in Canaan? There's giants that they say make them feel like grasshoppers. And then in the Exodus, in Exodus, uh, I think, 28, 25 or 28, talks about the wild beasts that God is uh, not going to kill off all the giants in Canaan. He's going to spread it out over a year because the giants need to be there in order to control the wild beasts of that land. They're not outside that land. They're only in Canaan. So I would, in my own mind, think that there's a good chance Ham and Canaan, they went and set up shop and this land of Canaan sort of baked like in its bizarreness in its twistedness in its DNA alteration alteration things, whatever the, the, the angels had the fallen angels who decided to leave their abode had brought in the knowledge that they had brought into mankind was uh, being uh, reproduced generation after generation in Canaan. And it's just getting more twisted and perverted and genetically things are going crazy and people say, how come God could, how could God send them in there to kill everything? Well, if you, if you kind of step back and look at what's going on in Canaan, it's not natural. It is some, it is genetic horror stories of, of, anyway, you'll have to do the lifting yourself. You can go dig into it. It's a, it's a large subject, but it's not hard to find. So then when Jesus comes, this has long been a baffling thing to me. So when Jesus comes, Jesus does something different. So the Spirit, the Holy Spirit has always been around. He's even in the Old Testament. But when Jesus comes, the Holy Spirit, what Jesus changes is the Holy Spirit comes to live inside of those who choose to follow him. That was a huge change in the spiritual realm. And I think that there is there is something substantially meaty in that. Like some just substantial in that. Because up until that time, it was sufficient for God's Spirit to just be in proximity to us. You don't read of the Spirit being in people until Jesus. And then the Holy Spirit comes into us. Well, there's a reason that that happens. And I think it is, I think it has something to do with protecting possibly the DNA or something along that line that the angelic race that left back in Genesis to try to corrupt creation that I believe possibly Ham and Canaan and his cohorts summoned back in after the flood and again began doing genetic experiments and trying to find a way to undo and destroy the beauty of God's DNA as it has been created specifically in humans, because we seem to be cracking DNA in a lot of species, but there's something different about human DNA that is just a little bit more complex, and it's creating more problems for those who have evil designs for altering it and making it something that is not what God created it to be. 
And you have this focus in the last three years of trying to alter it. I think we're just seeing this stuff floating to the top. And I think I think we have the same thing happening that was in the garden that was before the flood that led to the flood with this, this corruption of maybe they were successful at corrupting the DNA for the most part. And then you've got this after the flood. Here it surfaces again. And I believe it probably came through Ham and Canaan. And then it's there. And so Jesus comes back. I think, granted, he came for us, but I also think he comes back to respond to this. He spent so much of his time in northern Israel, basically calling out the underworld. And if you look at it, most of his ministry, it is the minute he identifies who he is, he goes straight for the underworld. He he does talk to people, but he is calling down all of the underworld and saying, I just want you to know I'm here. This is who I am. And because of who I am, you are going down. You're done. I'm going to, I'm here to write stuff that was corrupted when the underworld decided to invade my creation and start corrupting it. I am here to deal with you in person. And I'm going to beat you in human form, which is you've been trying to ruin my creation in human form. Now I'm going to take that form and show you not only that I'm going to beat you in that form, but I'm going to take my spirit and those who want to follow me. And I'm going to take that spirit and I'm going to put that in them so that you can't even alter who they are. I think there's something, I think there's a dog in this hunt and maybe over time it'll flesh out in my mind, but I tend to stay busy enough with other things that I was afraid if I didn't do this now, I wouldn't do it. Um, and I kind of did this so I could go back and listen to it and be reminded of maybe something to chase down as I get more free time at some point, you know, in the next 15 years. So anyway, I'll cut it off there. But I do think there is something there that maybe somebody somewhere it's it will it will maybe uh, put a spark in them to chase down where we, we could be possibly asking the wrong questions or looking at something from perhaps a different perspective than what we maybe what the most uh, is the most simple and obvious. I don't know. Again, there's nothing dogmatic in this. I'm not saying you should build any theology on this or take what I'm saying as factual. I'm only spitting words out on the page because it's this is how learning goes. I don't have the answers. I'm on a journey. And this is what it looks like in my head most of the time is just a it's an overwhelming uh, tornado. And this is a little snippet of what the tornado looked like this morning. So anyway, I hope you have a great day and I'll catch you on the next one.